For 20 years, Cultural DC has been making space for art. That includes physical places like galleries, theaters, and affordable housing for artists. But it also includes making space in the conversation for art. We're excited to bring you the third episode in our podcast series with our friends at Candor Labs. On this episode, we hear from artist Jefferson Pender about his performance art piece, This Is Not a Drill, performed at The Source on 14th Street in mid-June 2019. Jefferson Pender is an artist whose work provides evocative commentary on race and forms of struggle, aiming to investigate aspects of personal identity through the materials of neon, found objects, performance, and video. Pender is joined in conversation with Dr. Jordan Morris-Ajese to discuss Pender's new work and its inspirational ties to the Red Summer of 1919. Jefferson Pender's work has been featured across the globe in group and solo exhibitions at a number of institutions, including the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Phillips Collection in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and his work is a part of the permanent collection at the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. Dr. Jordana Morris-Ajese is Associate Professor of American Art at the University of Maryland College Park and Editor-in-Chief of the College Art Association's Art Journal. Her work centers on modern and contemporary American visual culture with an emphasis on expressions and theorizations of blackness. Her writing has appeared in Exposure, the Journal of the Society for Photographic Education, the Journal of Contemporary African Art, and Art Journal. Her first book, Reading Basquiat, Exploring Ambivalence in American Art, received the Penn Center USA Award for Exceptional First Book in 2015. So let's get started. Sure. I thought like, you know, maybe we could start by just how we met, if you remember how we met as a See, lady. Um, right? Well, we won't talk about the fact that you didn't recognize me at the last meeting of the College Art Association in New York a few months ago. <laughs> yes. Where you thought I was a grad I, so, student. I know. You don't age. I'm expecting to see like a few gray hairs, but that's not happening for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't like how, how did we meet initially? We met at um, CCA, right? We met via Patricia Suido. Oh, yeah. That's right. When you were showing in her gallery in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And there was a show with you, David Huffman. David Huffman, very right? good. It yes. was like sort of focused around space. Space. It was like Afrofuturism. Almost Afrofuturism. A little bit before like before it, Afrofuturism, Afrofuturism was a thing. Before there was a term to describe yeah, what we were right. doing, and so yeah, that was pretty exciting. Wait, where is he now, David? David is still at CCA. Okay. Yeah, still painting. Yeah, I like him. Still doing the Afrofuturist thing. Yeah, I know the basketballs, this, you know, and then the, um, the traumanauts. Yeah. Afro traumanauts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The traumanauts. Which, uh, I just thought it was just a really brilliant like way of like dealing with, you know, all these ideas of fantasy and reality and like the everyday and the mundane kind of coming together. You know. Yeah. Well, is that the only work? The work that I saw there was the one of people, sort of, lip syncing. Oh, mine? Yeah, your work that was shown at the yeah, gallery. Yeah, that's right. That, that, that was like, it was a uh, juke. That's right. Yeah, so that, yeah, that was 2008, so yeah. that's a, a while ago. But, I mean, that, I think I've continued that work. I did Revival in 2013, and that was like a little bit more of an extension, multi-channel. Did you ever see that? You no. Get that? But, um, yeah, we did that here in D.C. in 2013, and uh, me and um, Annie Golick, G Fine Art. Mm-hmm. Oh. 
but since then, you know, I kind of let the I've let the lip syncing go. I, yeah. I think I'm going to revisit it again, but I, I don't know. It's interesting because in this day and age, I mean, the, the big question in 2013 is is what's the relevancy? Is is there still like the genres of like black music, white music? Is there still this you know racial separations mm-hmm. in music? And I I believe it is, but I think perhaps it's more complicated now. It's more nuanced, but still, I mean, it, I think that. I mean, when you think about programming and music, it's it's completely different now. But but I still think that there's maybe some genres of music that's more accessible to certain groups of people. Mm-hmm. And and I think um, white people in general have agency for all kinds of music and acceptance. But somehow, if I start listening to a particular kind of rock music, I think there's associations with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where that came out of is this idea of like who's entitled to listen to what and what are the divisions in music and why aren't we talking about these divisions yeah i think that's still relevant you know one thing that i was thinking about as you're talking is this idea of audience like who is this music being produced for right Right. and we know sort of the old statistics of you know gangster rap is consumed 99 percent by (laughs) white suburban kids right but i was thinking about this shift in terms of you know Mm -hmm. timeliness of this kind of issue i was thinking about you know beyonce's Lemonade, right? And this sort of, you know, this uproar that happened around it of like, wait, Beyonce's not making music for me anymore, right? And it was sort of like, no, this isn't for a white audience. This is for a black audience. And so, you know, we see certain sort of types of music being even more targeted towards specific audiences in a way in 2019 that we didn't see maybe um, when you're doing Juke. But there's also kind of like this question of, I think, appropriation and, and authenticity, right? Yeah. Like who gets to do this and who gets to, I'm thinking of, you know, Katy Perry's appropriation of the marching band, right? From right. Beyonce's Coachella performance right. and all of the kind of conversation around that, like who gets to own this? But I really did like in that, in, in Juke, what I, one of the things I really enjoyed was this idea of that sense of dislocation that's provided with the lip syncing, right? Yes. And sort of the gestural quality of just watching people perform yeah it's like this these black music. faces and, and and this like infinite white background which was really popular at that time yes. the gap ads i think ups had an ad where they just had these infinity white backgrounds it just like and the apple right yeah, the, the apple, apple ads the apple yeah. ads and so i think that um that that was a part of it it's like can we take this out of context can, mm-hmm. can you see these these black faces in the midst of all this whiteness and how are they kind of struggling to 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 be able to, to commu- communicate their identity through this, I mean, white music, but at the same time, it's like, well, is it really white music? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you listen to it, you know, you, and also it's like, you know, one of the, the, the songs was, uh, you know, Patti Smith, Rock and Roll Nigger, and I still, like, I haven't given her a pass on that. I mean, people talk about, like, Patti Smith, like, you know, I, I somehow she just managed to, to, like, completely get over... Um, all the politics involved with, like, you know, screaming nigger in, into the, the microphone, mm-hmm. you know, I, I say 30, 40 times in that song. And, and I don't know. I, I would like to hear her talk about that. You know, I would love to Absolutely. hear Patti Smith, like, explain the justification of, of that song. And not to say that, you know, I mean, I think it was more acceptable for white people to, to say that. But... I wonder what the legacy is like, and I, I wonder how many, I mean, when I talk to my friends about her and her body of work, it, it's, very rarely do they mention that song. Of course, yeah. right? Yeah. I think that there's a certain level of permission, right, that we grant 
especially recording artists, right? Yeah. Thinking about all the controversies that are happening now around Michael Jackson and R. Kelly, and you know, it's, yeah. these things that you know you're able to kind of ignore their politics and their personal life, in, in order to just kind of sit back and enjoy, right? right. All the other Patti Smith songs, right? And, and just ignore that one. And just ignore that. Yeah. Or ignore what Elvis Costello was saying, you know, when, when he was, uh, or when he was at a concert and he talked about um, Ray Charles. Yes. I mean, it, it was. I mean, that that was. I would imagine would be crippling now. Yeah. But I think people have forgotten and forgiven and. and and allowed him to move forward with that, but I haven't forgotten. It's a fine line, though, right? Because at a certain point, you know, you just want to enjoy the music. That's you right. Know? And exactly. So, you know, when I was growing up and I was listening to something like, you know, Paul Simon's Graceland and mm -hmm. loving it, you mm -hmm. know, it was, I was all, you know, mmm, mmm. You know, I was doing <laughs> the whole thing. I was, yeah. Shoes, right? But, you know, now as an adult, when I listen to it and I think about how problematic yes. it is, right, yes. that he's putting these sort of, you know, African voices and instrumentation into that particular album. Right. It ruins it for me. It does. I mean, same, same with Peter Gabriel. I mean, yes. it's just like, and also, and I think interesting thing about 2019 is, is language has, has emerged to explain some of the things that we've been dealing with our whole lives. Mm -hmm. Like this, I remember, I mean, let's say 10 years ago, we started talking white privilege mm -hmm. to whites. They wouldn't understand what that meant. You know, I mean, the, it was, the context wasn't really introduced in, in the way and, and talked about in a way that it has been discussed. So finally, there's language that's emerging to express my discontent with society. Mm -hmm. And how does that change the dialogue? It doesn't mean that there's not a problem. It just means that now more people are on the same page or more people are more disguised to be able to understand how to hide it or, or not talk about it. Yeah. So the complexities is that, well, I mean, we've opened up the dialogue, but it doesn't mean that it's changed. I agree. Yeah. And I think it's, it's not just about this idea that we have a new vocabulary, but we have a new sort of collection of media, right? Yeah. And distributions and, and other outlets for seeing these kinds of images and ideas and, and, and sounds circulate, right? These gestures, right? That we see thinking of sort of like the hands up, don't shoot gesture and the exactly. way that that circulates, right? Um, in popular discourse. Again, something that has probably always been there, but we just now begin to recognize it, right? right? And we begin to sort of visualize it in a new way. So I'm thinking maybe this is a kind of roundabout way mm -hmm. of talking about your new project yeah. and thinking about the ways in which the things that we're exposed to, right, through media or through these sort of daily experiences, how they begin to impact the way that we kind of move through the world and, and how your project intersects with those kinds of ideas, this yeah. one for Cultural DC. Yeah, you know, it. I think it all comes back to, to trying to understand history, mm -hmm. the, like, the, the dates and the numbers and how they align. I actually, um, boy, I, at some point maybe I can get to information, but there was an incredible artist um, who I'd never heard of, but she was doing work about the summer of 2019, and, or, or 1919 rather, and it was kind of interesting to see how she was grappling with the history. And she was using astrology as a way of being able to understand like all the people who were killed in that year. And I just thought that's, that's, that's amazing. You know, it's just like there's, how we begin to dissect and come in contact with the things that really, um, that, that make us like infuriated about like the way that, you know, our history has played out. If only this was different. If only this had changed. So part mm -hmm. of my work is about like trying to think of how to interact with this history. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the true Afrofuturist sense, I mean, I, you know, it's weird because I'm not sure what, what I think about that title, but I love the idea that 
that the language is emerging to be able to describe some of the things that people we've been dealing with for a long time. So I, I'm I'm embracing that. I don't know if it's it's perfect, but it, it allows me to escape and to think about like more alternative ways of seeing how history has played out. Yeah. And uh, with this performance piece, I, I think initially it was like, okay, well, this happened a hundred years ago. What's what's different? How do you begin to explore your anger and frustration? Um, how do we work out that it's, I mean, 100 years isn't that long ago. A matter of fact, um, there's a woman who was actually the daughter of a prominent doctor in Chicago who's still alive, who, um, who's, I think, 106 years old. And she is, is as sharp as a, a knife, and she could recount, like, the, the night the riot happened, or, you know, the uprising happened. I try not to use the term riot because it just... I mean, that, that just implies, you know, a completely different paradigm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, when the uprising happened in 1919 in Chicago, she remembers her dad, who was a doctor, um, as, she, as she puts it, um, take out the largest gun she'd ever seen <laughs> and, and stand near the window. And I, and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. It made me think of Malcolm X. It made me think of, you know, we, we, a lot of times we associate, you know, black activism with the 60s. But... When reading about um, the summer of 1919, Red Summer, I can't help but to think that this is this militarization, this militarization of, of the black body um, is what initiated um, a, a, an empowerment. Mm-hmm. And you know, our government's really good at training people to kill. Yeah. You know, our our government is. I mean, I think we've got the corner in being able to um, to be able to connect with disenfranchised people and telling them this is, this is how you militarize yourself and prepare yourself for a conflict. And that's exactly what happened in 1919. Um, all of these soldiers had come back from foreign wars in which they were respected because they were given the dirtiest, ugliest jobs, and, and they took them very seriously, and they mm-hmm. performed well. They had the highest um, mortality rates um, of, of any uh, battalions in World War one and they came back to Chicago. They came back to D.C. They came back to Arkansas, and their eyes had been opened up. They had received all of this respect from the French government. The Harlem Hellfighters received the Croix de Guerre, which you know that mm-hmm. is like equivalent to the you know Medal of Honor. The whole you know battalion received that. And then the question was: It's like when you receive so much respect for doing your job and you go home, and you're told to to, to sit in the back of the bus, or you know you're you're being sub- you know, subjected to like you know the kind of uh, disrespect that that you know they they had fought against. You know how 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 did then did they take all of this energy um, and empower themselves? And I, I think that that's what I've been thinking about is like what kind of where does empowerment come from? How do you train an activist? How do you mm-hmm. train someone um, to stand up for themselves or be able to um, to to fight oppression? And I think World War II had a huge impact in that. That summer, so I'm I'm trying to figure out like, what are the connections now, and how can we make connections? How do we train militants? How do we train um, for this idea of militancy? And and we began working with with veterans, mm-hmm. Iraq War vets had come back and who had really incredible survival skills, mm-hmm. and we asked them, well, how do you survive an attack? What happens when a shooter points at you? How do you maneuver if you know that an enemy combatant once once to kill you and they're like okay th- this is how you survive and then we you know a, a group of uh, six of us um began to really pick apart these techniques and 
try to put them in a contemporary context and, and try to um, create a performance piece that was about a training of, of the body and mm-hmm. the mind for you know endurance as um, well as kind of militancy and being able to protect ourselves for, for conflict that that is going to happen maybe not to this body uh, maybe not tomorrow maybe it could be 300 years from now maybe it could be 20 years from now but how do we prepare the body um, and how do we condition the body to not only deal with what has happened um, in the past, but what's going to happen in, in the future? So it's kind of like forward thinking, you know, backward thinking um, way of dealing with history and, and kind of grappling with, with the terms that, that like black folks have had to deal with for, for centuries in this country. Yeah, I think that's really, you know, for me, of course, you appeal to my historian heart, uh-huh. right? When uh-huh. talking about 1919 and yeah. sort of the overlaps and intersections that it has with sort of our current moment. You know, one thing that, you know, sticks out to me about 1919 is, is you know, sort of the, the ways in which news about lynchings circulate in yeah. that moment, right? And so you think about this sort of increasing militarization and sort of the defense of the black body Right, arising in response to, to sort of the lynching campaigns that are taking part right throughout the South um, in that moment. But you're also having, as you bring up, sort of the context of the war. And we've seen right throughout the 20th century, especially for African-Americans who are fighting in foreign wars, that they come back not just with a sense of respect, right, and sort of the first time feeling respected in that foreign place, right. but they come back with a sense of expectation, right, that this is going to be the thing that wins me an acceptance, right? Like, how can I fight for a country, right? And, and sort of the great democracy, and how can I come back and still be disenfranchised, right? And so I think that you're dealing with a lot of sort of despair and, and helplessness and hopelessness in that moment as well that sort of feeds into that need to, to militarize, right? Exactly. I think also, you know, this idea of activism is really interesting because what does activism look like is something that I'm interested in, right? Like when I, I remember the moment when I learned, you know, and I always make sure to tell my students this because even they don't know, right? Um, and they went to school way more recently than I did. Um, I was surprised when I found out that, you know, Rosa Parks was a trained activist, right? That she had undergone training, that she had sat down on multiple buses before, right? Before yes. 1955, before right that moment in Montgomery, right, where we see that happen. Like, I was shocked, right? And so it's like, what does that activism look like? What does that training look like for Rosa Parks, right, and these sort of trained agitators exactly. of the 50s? And how might that compare to what we're thinking about as sort of this militarization of the body in 2019. Are we using some of the same tactics, right? Um, have those changed, even though the threats seem to be changing, right? In some cases, in some cases, staying the same. What do you think? No, I, 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 I love that you bring up that example because we think that these things just happen, right? right. Like in Alabama and Birmingham, when those children um, took off from school went down to the park and protested. They were attacked by dogs. They were attacked by the police. Bull Connor had the fire department out and they unleashed you know, the, the pressure of those fire hoses on those kids. But that was planned. You know, as much as we think, okay, um, Martin Luther King was about peace. Malcolm X was about like activism and, and violence. The truth is like, you no, know, 
Martin Luther King sent those kids in that park mm -hmm. to get sicked on by the dogs, and he knew how strategic it was and, and how powerful that would be and how the press was going to be there. And, and you know, if, if we look at it and we take a little bit of a different um, viewpoint, it's like perhaps Martin Luther King was a lot more radical than anybody gave Especially him credit for. Especially towards the end of his life. Sure, exactly. Yes, increasingly radical. And, you know, just the idea of, like, well, where does this come from? How are these you know, individuals trained to endure violence? And that's what we were thinking about with this performance. We were looking at the, the, the SNCC footage and the SNCC mm -hmm. photos. It's like, okay, we're going to go in this room. We're going to close the door, and I'm going to beat you because you trust me. You know, we're right. friends. Right. And the first time you get hit shouldn't be by a redneck on a lunch counter. You should know what it feels like beforehand so that you don't freak out and want to hit him back. Mm -hmm. Okay, because this is going to hurt. So I, I'm, I was fascinated with, with this idea of training, mm -hmm. that somehow uh, if you could teach, well, I, would, I, would, I mean, I don't know if you, you saw my escape artist piece that I did, in, you know, I think it was 2012, mm -hmm. but uh, I was interested in Harry Houdini, who's like, you know, touring the country, breaking free of holds, uh, there was nothing that could hold him back, and he, he had trained to to break out of a straitjacket, trained to break out of chains. They hung him up, similar to to lynching victims, but the difference was he could escape. He knew how to break free. So that's like thinking, well, what if African Americans could train themselves for these situations of violence, these situations of intensity? So I'm thinking, how do you break free from a hold? Mm -hmm. Can that? How if someone's shooting at you? Do you run in a straight line or do you do you zigzag? And that's what the military vets were, you know, for this production. It's like, okay, looking at this footage, looking at the footage from North Carolina, it, everything in your body is going to tell you to run in a straight line away. But in the military, we are, are trained to not think, to just do, because we've done through repetition and action over and over and over again, so that we're not going to run from in a straight line, even though everything in our mind is telling us just to get away. We're going to zigzag. Mm -hmm. So in this performance, there's, there's a part called No Straight Lines, where we start out running straight lines, and then gradually we move into more sophisticated movements in which we're, we're, not, we're not moving in a straight line. And this is what I'm thinking about. It's, it's, it's all about like preparing for that situation where someone could have a weapon and you have to get away from them. How do you how do, you do that? Um, well, you work with vets, and the vets will tell you, this is what the government has told us. And this is how we were taught. Um, another part is, is, is called, um, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. And Timmy Engelbrecht, who's in the performance, um, actually introduced this concept, this idea, which ma many Marines, or all Marines are trained, that in that phrase, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down, is the time that it takes for someone to track a rifle on you and to shoot you. Hmm. If it's, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down, you're dead. <laughs> I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. If you get down in that, in that you know, breath, then you're fine. Usually someone can't train a rifle on you in, in that quick a period of time. So these are the kind of things that we've been thinking about. It's like, how do you train the black body um, for those um, situations just like little um, children have to train in schools now for, for shooter drills, which is, this is our society. It's, it's horrible. I mean, I think it's yeah. disturbing, the idea. I mean, I know you, you have three kids, so I mean, it, it must be terrorizing, the idea of like having to take your kid to a school and, and, you know, these children being trained to, to, for someone to come in with a weapon to cause them harm. But at the same time, I think for African Americans, you have to be trained for this to happen anywhere, in the school, yeah. on the street, in your car. So these are the kind of things we, we talked about and we're thinking about and we're working through in the production. Yeah. 
That's interesting. You know, I was just listening the other day on the, the radio about this sort of the, the trainings that happen in schools with these drills, right, of active shooters, and that they were finding actually that, I'm not going to remember the exact statistic, but they okay. were finding that teachers weren't responding in actual active shooter situations because they weren't sure what was a drill and uh. what was real, right? And so I guess my question is, you know, about that, sort of the, to what degree are these things cathartic? To what degree are these things preparatory? Right. To what degree could these things actually counteract, right, their sort of original intention and purpose, right? Is there a point in which the sort of rehearsal of movement begins to interfere? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a great question because it, it makes you, th when the idea of catharsis with, with this performance is important because we've gotten to be a really close group of people because as I mentioned before, it's not as much as train. It's not only training for the future, but also thinking about the past and and how do you deal with this history? Well, is is taking a moment and maybe acknowledging that that this could happen to me, but hopefully I'm preparing for that moment so that I'm become confident. You know, when I was uh, talking to Simpada Ranki um, mm -hmm. at SAIC, she's an African American um, historian, and I was I sat with her and I'm like, how did the Black Panthers train? Because I was really interested in, in understanding, well, how, how, what was the initiation process for the Black Panthers? And, you know, she had great answers. One of what was like, well, actually, a lot of the training happened in prisons. Also, there was a lot of theatricality, mm -hmm. that a lot of these weapons weren't loaded, mm -hmm. that the leather coats was, you know, was planned, was, you know, that, that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that one person was like, okay, I want, let's wear a leather coat. It's like, no, 50 people, like, we're going to get leather coats, we're going to get berets, and we're going to learn how to march together in unison. Mm -hmm. And just the idea of this, this potentiality of threat was more powerful than any um, rounds or any bullets and any rifles because it was... It was a sign of unity. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an old joke about like, you know, uh, you know, if there's like three or four blacks at the water cooler in the office, you watch out. They're they're planning for a revolt. Well, it's there's a visual power in seeing like six, eight, ten, twenty people working together, moving together, planning together. And how is this theatricality? When does this become real? Mm -hmm. So as much as you know, um, there's a little tongue in cheek where I'm I'm telling people we're we're preparing and we're building militia. Well, the reality is, is that we're training together. We're meeting more times a week than most militias. Um, we're being trained by Marines. Uh, we're studying history. I, you know, I, I think we're like nine tenths of the way there. Uh, I think that we have a group of people together who who are thinking about these and, and are readying themselves. So I think that that's exciting. And that's empowering, kind of getting back to your question. It's like, how do you empower yourself in a situation where you're looking at the history of, of disempowerment? Mm -hmm. You know, or, um, you, know, it's, you, know, you read about the, it, these, these uprisings from, from 100 years ago, and it's, it's depressing. Yeah. You know? it's, and you start thinking about, how is this a part of our, our bodies? This, you know, this isn't long ago. This is a, you know, a generation and a half ago. Want more art? The Barbershop Project, presented by Cultural DC, is a multidisciplinary arts activation inspired by the performance of style and shop culture. Artist Devin Shimayama, fresh off a solo show at the Andy Warhol Museum, is collaborating with Barber of Hell's Bottoms Kelly Gorshuk and furniture artisan Caleb Woodard to transform the mobile art gallery into a fantastical, fully functional barbershop. The best part? 
you can get a free haircut while enjoying an immersive art installation. We also have an exciting lineup of programming throughout the summer highlighting DC artists. Check out the Barbershop Project presented by Cultural DC, now open at The Arc, also known as the Town Hall Education Arts Recreation Campus at 1901 Mississippi Avenue Southeast. I think there's a really interesting kind of moment. Maybe this is like a little too, I'm still a little too California, right? Uh -oh. um, but like, in, in what ways do we carry those histories in our bodies, right? Yes. And, and in our DNA. I remember when I was, um, when I was pregnant with my third child, they do this thing called cell-free DNA testing. Have you heard of this? Uh -uh. It was not around for my first, but for my third. And what it is, is they take a blood sample and they can determine, they can sequence the DNA of the child that you're pregnant with at that moment. Oh. And so I was telling the, the nurse that was drawing my blood, this is amazing. I didn't know that you could do this. She said, no, we've been able to do this for a long time. What we couldn't do before is we couldn't determine which was the current pregnancy and which was the other child that you've carried. Because you carry that child's DNA in your mm -hmm. bloodstream for years after you're pregnant That's with them. Wild, and so, you know, it gets back to this question of like, at what point do we carry these histories and these memories right in our bodies yeah. and and in what ways are you sort of in these kinds of projects activating right yes. um, those histories and those memories it also reminds me i mean we can come back to like the sort of spectacular quality of the black panthers and yeah. and the spectacular quality of like those images of civil rights right those dogs and those water hoses but i wanted to to get your take really on you know this I think this idea of, you know, the ways in which we're connecting militarization to something that looks more theatrical. I, I was reminded as you were speaking of, you know, Brazilian capoeira, for example, right? It sort of on the surface looks very innocuous, right? This is right. a sort of a training that evolves, right? Sort of during slavery um, in South America. Um, as a way to sort of prepare and to weaponize the body. Um, but the, the training itself looks like dance, right? And so I'm wondering if you see some sort of intersections between this project and, and something like Capoeira, which, you know, again, thinking about the tra traditions of the African diasporas or these things of hiding in plain sight. Yes. Um, what do you think about that? Wow, there's so many great things you just said. I don't want to know in particular. I mean, I think that I'm... Um, yeah, we worked. We spent a lot of time talking about dance, mm -hmm. in particular, like um, in the Middle Ages, when uh, these young children were, were were taught particular dance steps, and when they got to a certain age, those dance steps were, you know, they were sword moves. They were, they were like, okay, you're gonna mm -hmm. thrust to the right, back, thrust to the left, back. You know, um, it, it all started from the center point and moved in a diagonals to the right, diagonal to the left, then back, and then back, and then. Uh, when they got to be 14, 15 years old, it's like, okay, here's your, here's your sword. Now, instead of like moving this way, you're going to go for a kill move, kill move. Back, take a look over your shoulder, make sure no one's coming from the rear. And, and how these, these dance steps turned into to martial arts. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing. We're taking, like, and maybe moving backwards. We're moving from the actual Marine Corps hand drills and stylizing it into a particular kind of performance and spectacle. Um, and because it's not gonna really be able to get too far away from that drill, but as artists, we're trying to figure out, well, how do we open up this? Mm. How can it be more than in just a, a kill move? Um, yeah, it, it, gosh, what were you saying before? There was... Oh, I was just talking about, you know, sort of the, the spectacle of something like the, the Black Panthers, you yeah. know, the coordination of that. I was, you know, 
in thinking about civil rights in those photographs in particular, yes. right? The ways in which that those images of sort of hold a history for a lot of people that didn't experience, right? The civil yes. rights movement, like myself, right? I wasn't born yet. So, you know, the ways in which those images kind of circulate ideas about black activism or resistance or pain, right? I think yes. it's really interesting. And I'm, you know, not sure if you've read um, Martin Berger's book um, about the civil rights photographs, but, uh -huh. you know, I was really reminded of that. I actually had a little excerpt here. You know, I was thinking about the ways that, you know, these photographs encouraged white sympathy, right? Yes. By positioning the black figures in sort of these passive positions versus the active positions, right? That when we see those people, you know, he would argue sort of under the sort of, you know, pressure of those water hoses, that they're actually trained to resist, right? right? That pressure, that they're not actually suffering in that way, that they're fighting back right, against those dogs. Um, but we're seeing this the one shot, the one frame, right, where it looks as if. Yeah, right, the dog is tearing off the pants, the dog is attacking, yeah, rather. Yeah, the dog's in control. Right. Right, and so I guess I was thinking about, you know, in what ways would a performance or a project, or maybe not just this project, but a lot of your projects, kind of intervene in that sort of visual history of images of black bodies. Yeah, and, and this idea of choreographing empathy. Mm-hmm. You know that, and I think that's Susan the, Lee Foster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but it's the idea of like um, in this performance, I want people to feel. You know, I mean, the best compliments I receive for for the you know, this is not a drill is you know I wasn't always sure what was going on, but I felt something. I felt that these performers were sweating and working themselves uh, mm -hmm. to this this point of like where it, there was a reveal. And this is what I get. This is what I what you were saying a little earlier. Uh, you were talking about um, how is this uh, is this tension and this oppression in our bodies, mm -hmm. or how do we carry this trauma for the last three hundred years? I mean, and you know, the recent death of John Singleton. You, you, you can't help but to think that what what are, we, what are we carrying in us from three hundred years ago? It's like um, I have high blood pressure. I've had it for like probably twenty some years. And I remember going to a doctor and thinking, why, why, why am I have to deal with this? I feel I'm fit. I can run mm -hmm. a mile. I'm, I feel like I'm in great shape. Everyone associates high blood pressure with, you know, like bad health. And I started thinking about like my my parents that had high blood pressure, my grandparents that had had high blood pressure. Mine too. And it's just like these are. I want reparations for this. Yeah. You know. I mean, this is like. Slavery is one thing, but what is in our bodies that are physically we're carrying with us, and how do we reveal that? How do we tap into it? That if I make um, an African, I mean, I think that's what is so interesting with African American athletes, because at a certain moment of exertion, you can see that history. Mm -hmm. You can mm -hmm. read it, and I think that's why the appeal, the marketing appeal for black athletes, is so high. Because at a certain point, you're seeing something that you don't see with anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's why the references um, that were made in the 70s and 80s by these sports commentators, they, they, they didn't even know how to talk about it. They were like, oh, that's a slave body. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I see that. And now, you know, I guess commentators are more evolved where they can't say that. But the truth of the matter is, well, I, it, it is there. It is part of the history. And I don't think you can deny it. Right. Um, I just don't think we've come up with the language of being able to really talk about it. Well... 
don't get me started on athletes because that's my third book. But um, <laughs> especially black athletes and their representations and the ways that they circulate stereotypes, right, um, mm -hmm. around black bodies that were in place during slavery and Reconstruction, and that we uh, that these sort of stereotypes shore up, of course, white supremacy and white ideologies, uh -huh. right. Um, but I think I would argue, right, that we allow these stereotypes. To, to exist around black athletes in a way we wouldn't accept in popular culture, right? There's yes. sort of a, a rhetoric of physical superiority and savagery and, you know, sort of an uncontrollable personality that has an you know, insatiable appetite for white women and gambling and gunslinging and all of these things, right? These <laughs> rhetorics really um, are, are very clearly uh, perpetuated in, in this kind of literature, right, in sports literature. But, right, I, I also wanted to talk about this this idea of, of trauma and carrying it, you know, almost on a cellular level, yeah. right? I, there was a study of, of um, black women in particular who are have a cellular age three years older than their chronological age on right. average. And so there's a moment I think that you're kind of getting at and is that there's a moment in which the experience of racism affects us on a cellular level, right? It begins to affect Right, our bodies and 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 our blood pressure, yes. right, and all of these things. And one thing I'm curious about is because your work, as someone who works so closely with these ideas, yeah. how do you manage that? You know, I mean, how do you sort of just in your day to day life dealing with this subject matter, right, in yeah. such a clear way in your practice, and then leaving the studio and going out into the world and still dealing right, right with that. What are some of the strategies or, or, or ways that you think about that? Is there a moment where you think about pulling away from some of this very um, sort of volatile kind of subject matter that's so deeply embedded in experience of, of racism? Is there a moment where you think, you know, maybe I'll just go back to that lip syncing no. thing? Yes, you know? Geez. You know, it's interesting you say that. It's, when you're talking about the sports, I, you know, that quote that Basquiat has, it's, you know, black history is written on the sports page, right? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I, I have a big interest more than a lot of artists I know in sports, you mm -hmm. know, and I do see it as a cathartic release of that. Personally, I, but is it sport, I, I, though? I'm going to interrupt you because I don't know if your interest is in sport or if your interest is in endurance. I and the physical limits happens, of the body. Maybe the immediacy. Yeah. The moments. The, 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 the beautiful articulation of the, the body in, in, the, in these really kind of high tense situations. I, I will love to, to turn on. I'm not a huge basketball fan, but I always like to watch the last couple minutes. I don't care who's playing because it's like this tension. And, and it's like that's when the, the, the level, I mean, every, everyone's saving it or to, to the last minute to be able to perform at the highest level at that time where, where one or two points could make a big difference. And it's pacing, just like Muhammad Ali, you know, being able to, to, to endure these blows and wear out his, his opponent by not attacking mm -hmm. and being strong until finally, you know, it, there's a weakness. Yeah, they and exhaust themselves. They exhaust themselves. Um, how do I deal with, you know what, I'm, I'm a hot mess. You know, I think that there's always a struggle for me to find balance. I think one of the things that I have to deal with that I inherited from my mother is possibly thinking that everyone's the enemy. Mm -hmm. I feel like um, these 
stories, these uprising stories that happen throughout the country. I think the saddest part when I read is when the victims don't know who the, the perpetrators are and we end up causing each other harm. Mm -hmm. Like in Houston, Texas, when uh, this group of soldiers had had enough violence from the police that they decided to march to the police station in Houston and they never made it. Mm. They were shooting each other, they were shooting innocent people, they were shooting um, what their white officers. And it, it was like a horrible kind of decline, but you can't help, I couldn't help but the thinking of, of gun violence in Chicago. Um, now granted, this is extreme, but I find myself in, in um, not knowing uh, who's racist, or not knowing when I'm being slighted, yeah. or finding myself like wanting to give folks the benefit of the doubt, but, but going on this default of, you know, that my mother had taught me a long time ago, which is, you know, to be cautious, mm -hmm. you know, I find it hard to make friends, yeah. you know, I think that part of it is that, that there is a sensitivity that's accumulated with time that makes, that makes it really difficult outside of this realm. Uh, for example, a, a colleague of mine and I were, were arguing about something and I came out of my word, my mouth like uh, so clearly that I, I didn't know where it came from and I said everything has to do with race, everything, everything. And then I caught myself and I was like, does everything have to do with race? I'm gonna say and, yes. And you know, and, and I, you know, of course this is the self-editing part and I'm like, did, why did I say that? Mm -hmm. And then over the next two, three years, I'm like, yes. Everything me, does have does. to do with this. It does. No, I often think of my colleagues, you know, when I'm sitting, you know, in a faculty meeting or something, I'm thinking like, of course you wrote one more article than me, right? I mean, you've got this other part of your brain space that's not taken up with all of this stuff that I have to think about right. all the time. Right? Yes. What, what, what must it be like to move through the world and not have to think about this constant who's a friend, who's not a friend? Right. And I think it, it is also, I will say, as a daughter of the South, that is a distinctly Midwestern problem, right? Mm -hmm. That come down to Tennessee and you'll know who's an enemy and who's not right. an enemy immediately, exactly. right? And I, I always argue, you know, with people that aren't from the South that, you know, there is a, for me, there is a sense of security in that. You know, I'm not spending my time guessing who's, who's with me and who's against me. Yeah. Like I've got the, I've got the signs very clearly there, yes. right? And so I think part of that fatigue is living in an environment where the lines aren't as clear. That's right. Where it's kind of blurred. And you're not sure, am I being followed? Like, I can tell you in Tennessee, like, <laughs> straight up, I'm being followed, right? Right. Like, I can tell you I'm walking into any restaurant and I'm making eye contact with every black person in there. Right. Right? And I'm giving them the nod and we're acknowledging each you other. You got my back. I got your back. Yes. yes. Move to California. No one does the nod. Yeah. No one nods. Right? And Great. so it's very difficult to navigate, I think, those kinds of environments where there isn't sort of a clear code. Absolutely, I mean, it's. I, th I think it's something that has to be learned, and, and it also has a- And passed down. And passed down, and it has a weight. Like, you know, I remember my, my mother teaching me what to do when a police officer pulls me over, and I just thought she had lost her mind. I just was being, four, uh, you know, 16-year-old and naive, mm -hmm. and she's like, okay, keep both hands on the steering wheel, announce when you're going to your glove box, and I'm like, mom, this is like 1989. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, why do I have to worry about this? And and of course, you know, in 1990, I was like, okay, 
And, you know, 1996, I was like, wow, yeah, she was right. 2019, my mom was brilliant. Thank God she taught it to me. You know, so it's like, it, but it has a weight to it. Because, you know, you're 16 years old. You don't want to be thinking about what, what I have to do in a life or death situation. Or, or why would I think that this is a life or death situation if I'm naive and I don't know the history? Yeah. But the more you read, the more that happens, the more you see in the news, the more that's being, like, photographed and, and captured now on social media. I'm like, you know what? You know, my mom was a prophet. She she knew what it you know was yeah. all about. I just it just took me a good you know fourteen fifteen years to really understand the brilliance of her comments and and the survival techniques that she, she taught me that I unfortunately had the same conversation with my son. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's I think it's all this stuff. Well, it um, comes down to I think to this idea of of training, training right, and 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 preparation right, and so what are the things that we need to be thinking about as we move right. Um, sort of through the world, right? Depending on our own individual subject position. I think it's also, you know, really important making that connection, you know, within this project, but within most of your work that I'm familiar with between sort of, you know, the, the real world, right? And the art world. Right. I think that, you know, when I'm teaching performance art, you know, this basically when I'm teaching the history of art and I get to like, you know, 1960, people start checking out. They're like, what is this? You know, we're just looking at blank paintings. <laughs> we're looking at, you know, people just standing in a room grunting or, you know, pet petting a hair covered in gold, you know, all these things that, you know, I think it seems so disconnected. And it seems, I think, from uh, sort of the un uninformed observer, it seems um, frivolous. Right? Yes. There's always, I think, a conversation within a larger American culture around in moments of crisis, what does art have to do? Right? What is the responsibility of art and the responsibility of artists to speak to our social and political conditions? I think that in many cases, we think of performance art in particular. Yeah as being completely disconnected. You know, it's just this person running around, just doing whatever they want. And so I think it's important, you know, for, for anyone to, to understand the sort of political connections, right, of using the gesture and using the body and using that training yeah. and thinking about its sort of very real stakes, right, um, in our world. So I love that you bring up that example of your mother sort of training you yeah. in that way, in the same ways that, do you imagine training your audience? Exactly, and that's, or even like potentially intimidating them. I mean, depending, and I think depending where they're coming from, I, I, just as they might find Aunt Jemima, the image of Aunt Jemima being comforting, as one of my students said to me. No. I, yeah, and I was like, thank God she said it, because I know she's not alone, and I know product marketing was, was designed so that that image is comforting. I want this performance possibly to have a little counter effect, and maybe mm -hmm. this is, why isn't this making you feel uncomfortable? You know, and so I think it's 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 as as far as, far as the role of an art artist. That's why I love performance because it falls or performance art rather is it falls between the cracks. At moments, you're going to look at the, the work and you think, wait a second, is this dance? Is this theater? Mm -hmm. is, is this um, some of that weird performance art stuff? Well, it's everything, and and part of it between I mean by falling in between these cracks, it becomes political. Yeah. Because you can't define this, then all of a sudden you don't know what it is. And if you don't know what it is, it can knock you flat on your ass. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's also power in failure. Sarah Jane Bales, you know? It's, yes. You know, this idea of um, the poetics of failure. And that, that 
if you do the same thing over and over and over again and you get an expected result, it's very different than pushing yourself to a limit where you don't know what's going to happen. I can tell you at the end of this piece, I don't know if they're going to execute the, mo the moves that we have planned with precision that we want to do it. Every single performance, we don't know because depending where they're at mentally and physically, we end um, the Porsche, uh, this, this is not a drill in um, a part called recovery in which we're using meditation and yoga exercises to kind of focus the body to try to concentrate and to get out mm -hmm. of this idea of militarization. How do we demilitarize ourselves? Mm -hmm. How do we walk out of the room as human beings again after we scream kill like, you know, 40 times? And that's not easy. I mean, this is a, our um, yoga person, Sidra Newman, uh, she's an ex, you know, she's been doing yoga for over a decade. And you can tell that she's strong. She's raw vegan. Her body is, I mean, you think about the potentiality of, you know, weaponizing the body, she would be perfect for it. But after all these military drills, she can barely hold a yoga pose. Mm. She can barely do what she's been trained to do, and she can do almost in her sleep. But after being keyed up and being so tense, it's, it's almost impossible for her to execute. And, and, and by default, it's almost impossible for the whole crew to do it. So we don't know how it's going to end. In some way, that unpredictability that acceptance that failure may happen in this moment is is political mm -hmm. and i think it's using that politics um in this performance and and trying to get people to think about what the black body has to go through is, is at the crux of the piece mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i'm always sort of reminded of that you know one of the earliest writings on performance art right by alan caprow right and sort of the the legacy of Jackson Pollock right mm -hmm. that essay where he first talks about happenings they're, they're taking place in New York in the 50s and he talks about the happening as, as, as something between art and life yes right and I, I've always sort of come back to that that it's, it's somewhere in that space between right art and life it's not quite one or the other exactly but both simultaneously and I'm very curious to see how the audience for this will respond right because I think that in the same ways that we've become much more familiar with black violence, right? I think, and, and sort of the increase of white empathy around black violence. I think there's also this risk of um, burnout, right? Yes. I, I remember going to a colleague's house, for example, and they told me that they hadn't read Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad because they were feeling too fragile, yeah. right? And yes. I thought, yes. what? <laughs> like, I, good I, for you, you get to take a break. You know, um, but I'm wondering. Like, it's so funny that you say that because I have a colleague who said the exact same thing. Just Maybe like, it's I, the I same person. I, I, I hope so. But why do I think that's, that's not the case? I mean, I, I don't know what it is about that book, but like right around 10 pages into it, a lot of people are like, I can't handle it anymore. I'm it's sorry. like you didn't have to live it. Like, I'm why sorry, are you? Can't handle it. Great. So it's so interesting that you mentioned that book because I just, I always thought that was a strange comment that, uh, that there's a threshold. Yeah, and there's the same, like, you know, I think there's a lot happening at this moment. Like, I'm thinking of Ava DuVernay's new miniseries, When They See Us, yes. right? Is uh -huh. that the name of it? Where they're talking about the Central Park Five. And there's so many people, you know, in my network that are like, you know, I can't watch it, right? It's too painful. And there's a question of, like, well, sit down and shut up, right? right. You didn't have to live this. Right. You, you need to watch this. You need to be aware of this. And so... And I think people don't right, make the connection to that... And that struggle in the struggle for humanity in general. I mean, mm -hmm. I, and I, I don't know, maybe people were like, oh, I can't, I can't see Schindler's List, you know, because it's too strong. But I, you know what? I, 
watched Schindler's List and, and I empathize right. because I think that there's a commonality in that pain mm-hmm. you know so I, I wonder about that and, and I, geez I, I think that I wish I could make you know beautiful abstract painting you know mm-hmm. I, I, I think sometimes I look at work I look at work of my colleagues and I'm thinking that's just incredible work and I, and I love it but I don't think I have that capacity mm. you know I mean I think that even though I, I sometimes I, I venture into you know some more abstract object making, but the fuel of it comes from this place and this, this definition of trying to figure out where am I centered, and I think that it, you know being able to sit in a room all on my own and being able to, to create straight lines. I mean, heck, that could be one hell of a meditative exercise, but I'm not there. I think yeah. maybe I'll retire into like some real cool <laughs> minimalist work, but I right can't now wait to it's see like all you know, of just... your line drawings that you do on your. <laughs> no, I don't think there'll be many paper. straight lines. I tell you. <laughs> I wondered, you know, if you wanted to talk any more about this idea of endurance and failure, in particular. Yeah. You know, I think just recently you, know, you are aware, mm-hmm. I, I think, that Ben Hur was up at the Driscoll Center at the University of Maryland. And it's one of my favorite pieces mm-hmm. of yours. And I think, one, you have kind of that like spectacular quality of all these men in white shirts, black ties, which is sort of very much reminiscent of sort of this moment of the 70s and the Nation of Islam and exactly. black Muslims. And you know, they're all in these, you know, sort of rowing machines and rowing to exhaustion. And, and you see sort of the inability of sort of the, this clothing to, to meet their needs, but you also see, right, their inability to finish, right, sort of this exercise. Um, at some point, they all break down. And I don't know, I think that there's something really beautiful in sort of that endurance quality um, that happens there. And I wondered in what ways does does this project or do maybe all of your projects have something to do with this idea of endurance? And, you know, if I were to get really sort of psychological on you, uh-huh. like... <laughs> <laughs> like a therapist? You know, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Like how much of it is about sort of like, you know, your own endurance, right? Yeah. Um, in moving through the world. Yeah, Ben-Hur was, was special. It was special because, um, you know, Daryl Atwell. Yes. You know, Daryl is a collector, you know, like a lot of goodwill people uh, say, hey, Jefferson, you know, you need something, just let me know. And he's smooth like that. And I was like, you know, Daryl, I need, I, need, I need help recruiting performers for, for work. Do you, would you be in my piece? And he's like, sure. And a lot of people know Daryl as, as, as a collector, but I think you look at him, um, I guess, more broadly, you also know him as an uh, anesthesiologist and as a rower. He had great form. Mm-hmm. And he was at the front, and he was the leadership. Not everyone had great form in that. No, form. no, exactly, and that's the thing. I mean, the young guys didn't have great form, but they all followed Daryl yes. because Daryl was at front. Daryl was keeping time. Daryl had had rode before. No one else had rode before. So we're on these 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 uh, makeshift rowing devices called water rowers, where it actually makes the sound of of the water steering in the chamber. And because Daryl has great form, the endurance can't be as long. Mm. Uh, we had like professional rowers come in and say, okay, make adjustment. Do this a little differently. Do that a little differently. And all of a sudden, our hour and 15-minute piece became 50 minutes long because people couldn't do it. So we learned oh. from that. And so when Daryl broke down, it was interesting to watch how everyone else was breaking down as well. It was yes. like if you cut off the head of a snake, it, 
um, there was no one to, to, to watch. And then it became a free-for-all. Who is going to be the last one on the machine? And ultimately, usually it was the 22-year-old who yeah. had a rubber band body who you know yeah. could stay longer on the machine. And it was just kind of like a really fascinating social experiment because on top of the fact that you know that we, we reference Ben-Hur and there's that slave ship or slave yeah. galley scene where all these slaves are working on the ship and it was amazing how many people were like this piece reminded me of the middle passage hmm. so it's like this compression of not only performances my performances that maybe Charles Charlton Heston um Performance, but also in like these histories. Yes. Because it's like, wait a second, this is reminding you of the Middle Passage? To my knowledge, I don't think we were working on the ship. No. But then the idea of war- labor and the idea of this this passage kind of came together in the work and it just kind of made for kind of unique compression of, of all of these, these elements that we understand to be a part of the whole experience. Yeah. Well, it brings me back to one of the first things you said, right? This idea of that you want to make work that interacts with history interacts with right history, yeah. and I, I often sort of in my own semantic interest I'm thinking about is it interacting or is it interrupting hmm. right and yeah. sort of I, I would say that your work is more interrupting right? I love that. that history so maybe to end we can talk about what's next what's next what's coming after this what are you working on well there are a couple studio projects that I, I in solo studio projects. Not making abstract paintings, I'm not, assuming. Not making okay. abstract paintings yet. Yet, I'm saving that for retirement. <laughs> like, Nothing wrong with the people that make abstract paintings, by the way. No, are you kidding? Some you people do are you. doing Yeah, right. And there's, I feel like, you know, uh, Elaine Locke and, and a lot of other scholars have established it a long time ago that, that there's room for everyone. There's room yes. for all these different conversations. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just jealous. I feel like um, I, eventually I will get to that point, but right now I'm just, I'm enjoying these these like you know street fights, mm-hmm. you know, and really being able to, like you say, interrupt um, the things that that bother me and um, experimenting with 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 history, you know, sampling histories. Uh, but what's next is is this a, a piece I have been working on for so long I, I don't even want to admit it. I like refuse to give up one of my studio spaces because I'm shooting in there, and the piece is is titled Zulu Sign Language and it's based on um, Nelson Mandela's memorial service with the fake sign language interpreter. Mm. I don't know if you remember that. Guy. I do not remember. Oh this. gosh! So for nine hours, there was someone who was sign who was doing sign for. Uh, Mandela's service and came within two feet of, I think, 90 world leaders. Wow. Who did not really know how to sign. He made up his signs. But it was, it was more than that. I think he was in, in he was having a, um, he was having an episode. He was having a mental breakdown episode. And he created, I think, probably one of the most dynamic either performances I don't know what you call it because it was unintentional wow. it would be the equivalent of watching someone talking to themselves on the street they were having a real dialogue uh, this guy was in his estimation was really interpreting because he, he either that or he deserves an academy award because it was just brilliant hmm. and immediately once they realized he wasn't real it, be, it then became political first of all um, everybody asks you know the secret service why 
was Obama allowed to be next to this guy who was you know, obviously mentally ill, had a police record, um, was being paid $10 an hour. Why didn't Secret Service do something about it? Secret Service, like, well, we usually leave it up to the host countries to, to vet the sign language interpreters, and that's, you know, that's bullshit, right? So then all of a sudden, uh, Zuma, the president of South Africa, was asked, why, you know, was this guy on stage with all these leaders when he was fake? And Zuma said, it wasn't fake, it was Zulu sign language. And all of a sudden he dropped like all of this history onto this man, onto this moment. And it's what? like, it's like it was a slippage. It was slippage because there is no Zulu sign language per se, but because there isn't, he like, all of a sudden he ordained these actions as being Zulu. Of course, the sign, you know, and, and what's taking me so long is because I've been talking to people at Gallaudet, and they're like, this isn't cute. This isn't funny. This shouldn't be the subject matter of, of your art piece. This is something that we need to handle within our community. So all of a sudden, there was this intersectionality that just slowed me down. Hmm. I mean, because all of a sudden, here I am as this black artist who all of a sudden has all this agency to have these conversations, stepping into another conversation where all of a sudden, I, I went from having a lot of agency to, to very little and so, where I was thinking of using um, Tomska, Tomska as Jante is the name of the, uh, the, the sign language interpreter, I was going to use his signs. And, you know, my deaf uh, colleagues and friends are like, there's no way we're going to allow you to do that. It's mm -hmm. like you need to learn the real signs. And so, I've been working for years, really, literally. I, I mean, I'm You've been afraid. learning ASL? For I've been learning. Well, I know some ASL, but I've been working with. Um, some interpreters who've been um, sitting me down and, and, and it's like, this is really what the signs would look like for this. And then we started incorporating all this black nationalist text hmm. into it and I'm learning those signs. And it, it, it's just something that couldn't be done right away. And so it's taken me a while really a long time but I'm not giving it up so that's why I'm saying it right now because I'm like oh, now you're you know committed. in this podcast I'm like letting you know that peace will get done it is happening now and so that that's that's the most prominent thing outside of the red summer and with the red summer road trip we have other stops as I mentioned in Houston yeah. um working with Cedric Huckabee and um in Dallas an amazing um artist who actually uh uh works with, with political leaders and teaches them how to paint. I won't go into details about that, but, but Cedric is... Is that is, a Bush reference? Uh, yes. Wow. Um, is, gosh, I, just, I think I just outed Cedric. Gosh, <laughs> I, we might have to cut this out. <laughs> but yeah, which I think is fascinating. You know, that that's, is That's another conversation you'd have to have with him. But I, I just think that, um, you know, everybody acknowledges, wow, George Bush is a better painter than, than I thought. It's like, well, there, there's there's... And it seems to have completely changed his perspective. Yes. yes. Which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, we could go on about that. I mean, actually, in, in, the, in the Trump years, George Bush seems a whole much seems more like kindlier and friendlier you know, president than we ever gave him credit for, which is just Oh, crazy. we've ended up in such a strange place. We are in a strange place. But, yeah. Jordana, thank you so much. Yes, this thank you. This has been you. so nice to talk with you. And, you know, I look forward to the next time where we're, like, talking about the my work or your work even you know yeah anytime it was a pleasure yeah this podcast is powered by candor a digital production lab based in northeast dc we help you build powerful marketing content connect with your audience and grow your business want to become a content expert swing by our studio on the arts walk in brooklyn 
or check us out online at candorlabs.com. That's candor with two A's.